In the southeastern states of America, there's a rather large congregation that's devout to a three-letter power, the SEC. In SEC country, football matters, and though they take their love for the gridiron seriously, they make sure they have a lot of fun doing it. Football reigns like cats and dogs. Well, wildcats and tigers and bulldogs to be exact. Whether you're between the hedges or on good old Rocky Top, there's always something to broil your passions and cheer about. Take a spot on the cockaboose, stroll through the grove, or take your thirst for tailgating down to the junction in Stark Vegas. Rammer jammer, yellow hammer, give them hell. And can we please get some more cowbell? Not in Oxford, they say. Hotty toddy, gosh almighty, who the hell are we? Flim flam, bim bam, oh miss by damn. Cheer with the golden girls of LSU, or yell with the yell leaders of A&M at midnight in preparation for Saturday's stand-up affair, where the Aggies never lose. They merely run out of time. They have live ma mascots like Ugga, Mike the Tiger, Smokey, and Reveille. Or if the safer costumed characterization is more your thing, go visit Cocky, Truman the Tiger, Big Al, or Big Red. You like hand gestures of the appropriate kind? You can flash a thumbs up in Aggieland, a VU at Vanderbilt, or give the Gator Chomp down in the swamp. Players come from all throughout the hotbeds of recruiting to march down Victory Hill into the dark, noisy night of Death Valley, or to run through the T over in Knoxville, or the A down in Fayetteville. The fanatical cries of this league are what make it great. Shout out Hail State in Starkville, or call the Hogs of Arkansas with a Woo Pig Suey! Go Tigers, go Big Blue, and Gig'em Aggies. Roll Tide or War Eagle. Just make sure it's one or the other, and never on the wrong side. Does this get your football blood going? You bet your silver bridges it does. So call the two bits guy, anchor down, and join us for a bowl full of chips. Bom bom bits, a bowl full of chips. Bom bom bits, with Jappy Bom bom bits, two young brothers. Bom bom bits, talking college football. Bom bom bits, and life and humor. Bom bits, and some funny ass clips. So relax and unwind with a bowl full of chips. Hey, how y'all doing? Roll Tide, War Eagle, Rocky Top, Tennessee, Anchor Down, Gig'em, and Woo Pig Suey. Hail State and Hotty Toddy to come later, and even the less creative, Go Dogs and Go Gators. Welcome to the SEC-dominated week of a bowl full of chips. I am your co-host, Old Chappie. And you all know my platonic partner, Bipperoni and Cheese Pizza. Bip, how you, you fixing to talk about some college football? Ooh-wee, you bet your britches I am. <laughs> now, we, we want to put a disclaimer, and we hope that nobody takes offense to this. But if you do, there's not much we can do about it now. Bip and I are from the South. Uh, Bip, actually born and raised in the South. Myself, I lived there for 10 years uh, down in Texas just outside of Houston to be exact. So we do have some credibility and some experience to draw from, from our Southern dealings here today. Yeah. Both from the South, but wouldn't you, wouldn't you guess, uh, neither of us can get a tan. Yeah. Yeah. No, we, we left, uh, we, we definitely took that part of our Northern heritage with us and uh, it still remains today. Years and years <laughs> later. <laughs> so well, you bet your britches that we're going to talk some college football. We're going to talk SEC mostly today. Our podcast topic this episode and even following up on our next episode later in the week 
is the SEC. Today, we're going to talk about traditions of the SEC. So grab yourself a Coke. Let us bring you the bowl full of chips you need. So here at BFC, we bring football closer, and we want to thank you for listening. Bip, our numbers have been increasing, which is awesome, don't you think? Yeah, and a big thank you to the new listeners for giving us a try. And also a shout out to our loyal listeners who are tuning in for more than their first taste of a bowl full of chips. Yep, I don't think you can get enough, and we hope you feel the same. The best way to make this podcast even better, though, is to subscribe. And so Bip and I are going to encourage you, if you're so inclined, to share with your friends and your family, anyone you know that enjoys college football. And it's easy. All you got to do as you're listening to this, there should be a share button on your device that you can send it via text. You can send it email or maybe even just mentioning us by mouth or by media. Social media is good. We take to the Twitter. Your good words need to be heard. So please help us out. And we're hoping you're doing so because you enjoy it. Well, here at BFC, bowl full of chips. We love college football. We love to laugh and we love the South. Bip, uh, being that you were born and for the first seven years of your life raised in the great state of Texas, uh, what are your impressions from the Lone Star State and from your time down in God's southern part of America? Well, uh, it's it's hot, Chappie. Uh, first and foremost, it's very, <laughs> it's very hot. Um, but I, I enjoyed my time down there. Um, you know, outside of the the heat and the sometimes humidity. Um, you know, it's, yeah, it's really one of the, <laughs> uh, for anybody well, who's ever been just... down to Southern Texas, right by the Gulf of Mexico, humidity is about as constant as the sky. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, and there's, there's really not uh, a bad time to be down there as far as weather's concerned. If you can oh, no. take out the tornadoes and the heat and humidity, as mentioned before, um, none of this, none of these frigid temperatures, uh, down there. So it was really a nice time during my, my, uh, semi brief stint in the Lone Star state. So I've been back there once before, um, and have multiple uh, trips planned in the future. Cause it was really, uh, an enjoyable time. Yeah. I would say, you know, I, I, I'm a sentimental type of person and I love to look back at all the good times in my past. And certainly, the time in Texas was well spent. Uh, I had the fortune of going down there probably about 12 years ago and went to an Astros game, kind of went in and around the the greater Houston area and, and kind of took it in as much as I could for the two days that I was down there. I uh, went down there for a work conference as well another time where I was treated very nicely. But, you know, the thing that stands out to me, Bip, in a positive way is the Southern hospitality and the manners. No offense to any of our people here in the Midwest, but the manners and the the treatment of other people is not nearly as gracious and as hospitable as you'll get down in some of those southern states in the southeastern part of the United States. So um, that's really one thing that stood out to me. The thing that I am glad that I don't have to deal with as much is, like Indiana Jones says, snakes, Jock. I hate the snakes. <laughs> you know, I've never been a, a, a huge um proponent against snakes uh if one slithers across in my path i usually don't make a point to jump out of the way however i will say it's nice being in michigan where there are um not many if any uh poisonous snakes that you have to worry about on a consistent basis i'm gonna i'm gonna go geek on you and, and point out that it is the term is venomous 
because there are technically no poisonous snakes, but that's just the nerd in me bit. <laughs> uh, and, yes, and, I want to emphasize that is the nerd in you. <laughs> correct. Yep. Capital N-E-R-D. And we do actually have one venomous snake here in Michigan, but uh, that's all we have to worry about. And it's a threatened species. So uh, he's more concerned than we are. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, the other things about the South that we like, it's a simpler life. They love their fun down there and they carry little shame about their pastimes, which is the way life should be lived. And that's what it should all be about, provided you're not hurting yourself or anybody else. So keep doing what you're doing, Southerners. Uh, you're having fun and, and we enjoy watching you do it. And one thing that I, I kind of am upset that I didn't get to experience is the football experience. When you talk about yes. Friday night and Saturday night lights down in the South, you know, we love our football up here in the Midwest, but it's a whole nother animal as far as everything that I have read and heard about as far as Southern football. So that would be one thing that if I were jealous about not living in the South in my older years, it would be the football um, experience and the, the attitudes towards football, whether it's high school, college, pro, it seems like it's a whole nother animal down, down in the South. It is. And I was only really just starting to get into it by the time that we had to move. But a uh, quick little story for you. There was a local football player that was the running back for Klein Oak High School, which is a, a school that's just in the woodlands it's, or it's in Spring, Texas, which is just outside of Houston. But I remember we were at a Walmart, uh, my, my mom and dad and I and younger brother. Uh, and I believe, Bip, you were maybe just in diapers at the time, but we Probably. went to Walmart and this uh, the star running back who ended up going to the University of Texas and really being like fifth on their depth chart. He came into the store and everybody stopped and turned and basically mobbed him. And, and here he was. I mean, Klein Oak was a 5A school in Texas and did pretty well. But, um, you know, here's somebody who ended up being a fifth string running back at the University of Texas for the Longhorns stopped everything in Walmart and, um, you know, had people flocking to him. So I don't know that you would necessarily get that in schools around here or places around here, just because the culture is uh, really A and B compared to what it is down in, in the Lone Star state. So, yeah, I agree with you. I, if I could go back and if I, if we could have stayed down there for longer, being a, a Texas football, high school football player and fan and someone around that culture, that would have been a cool experience for sure. So we talked about the Twitter earlier, Bip, and where people can find us. But if you have not had the chance to converse with us, I am at champion underscore lit. And tell and everybody I, where they can find you. And they can find me at, at BFC Bip. Bip and I have had a uh, you know, little bit of uh, experience with the college football conversations going back and forth. And it's nice conversing with the fans and, and seeing what people have to say, their thoughts and opinions, because some are more on the mark than others, but it's always good to talk the great game. So, yep. And, well, and we're big boys. So if you don't, if you don't agree with our opinions, feel free to call us out on it. We'd love to have a, a nice and open debate for anyone that uh, is willing to talk some college football. Yep. We're not going to cry about anything. We're not going to get our feelings hurt. If anything, we're going to throw our opinions right back at you and hopefully that they stick and, and hope that everybody's having a good time with it. Well, we talked about the rundown. Today's show is going to be specifically SEC and the traditions of the SEC, because I think most people can agree that they take their, their football serious in the Southeastern Conference in the states of Georgia, Kentucky, Florida, South Carolina, uh, Tennessee, 
Louisiana, Arkansas, and Mississippi, and even over there in Missouri, which some people say geographically is not exactly SEC football country, but um, logistically speaking, they do belong there. So we're going we're gonna to start with some news and notes, but we're going to get into our SEC traditions and stories. So what we pride ourselves here in at Bowl Full of Chips is being college football podcast that gives you more than the mainstream potties do. We're going to throw details at you more so than others do, back our claims with research and perspective as well. There's no political agenda here, nor are we driven by pen pushers or corporate dollars. We are objectively subjective. We will try to keep the pounds of praise balanced with the punch, with the punishing punches balanced uh, for all teams, and we're both complimentary and critical wherever and whenever necessary and just. Yeah, so and... And as Chappie mentioned, we make sure that we back up our opinions and our claims with research stats and viewing experience. So when we say that a guy's more of a runner than a passer, we make sure that he has more than 108 rushing yards versus 4,800 passing yards in his last year. Um, <laughs> and yeah. for anyone that's not aware of what I'm referencing, go look up Stephen A. Smith, Dwayne Haskins on Google, and you'll find out quickly. A um, couple, one funny thing that I that I saw Chappie on, on Twitter was someone brought up uh, the, the the reference that, I, that I'm making for Stephen A. Smith. And they said, yeah, you know, Jerome Bettis really wasn't that big and strong of a guy. Where he really made his mark was his speed in college and pro football. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there was, yeah, a, there was, was a whole slew of, of things like that that, was, that yeah. uh, really made me laugh. <laughs> yeah, Jerome Bettis was one of Brian Kelly's top slot receivers at yeah. Notre Dame. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I, I've heard Stephen A. Smith being compared to as a Muppet, and I think that one of Jim Henson's Muppets without the hands up the backside probably would have made more sense than Mr. Smith did uh, this weekend. So Exactly. <laughs> so let's get to our news and notes. And Bip, uh, being that we are a podcast that runs out of the state of Michigan, what the hell's going on in Ann Arbor with the run game? Yeah, I mean, it, it seems as though it's every week that the Wolverines are starting to lose someone from their backfield. They're really going to be struggling to see who is going to be toting the rock this year as they have some really good talent returning in the passing game, especially at receiver, obviously Shea Patterson. But who's going to be receiving the handoffs as they just keep losing player after player after player? They're going to really need to focus on uh, some incoming freshmen and also probably rely on a couple position changes as they get into spring and fall practice. Yep. And so Karan Higdon left for the NFL. Um, his apparent backup, Chris Evans, is currently not with the Michigan program. He's focusing on some academic issues. So the implication is that he is not going to be playing for the Wolverines. Now, we don't know if he's going to be transferring or if he's going to try and get his grades back on track to be eligible again. Uh, talked to somebody in Wolverine circles today, and they, they had the impression that he's going to be back by the fall. He'll, he'll somehow get academically eligible but for him to make that declaration over social media was kind of big. You would figure if he plans on recovering and staying with the program, they would have kept it silent. They would have kept it hush-hush. He would have gotten tutors, not anybody from Missouri, but he would have gotten the right tutors to put him back on track, and, and this wouldn't even be an issue. But um, certainly kind of a, a, an alarming thing. And then the other one that we saw this weekend was Omari Samuels, who was really his uh, – backup backup the the third stringer mm -hmm. was dismissed from the team and it looks like 
as they say, he gone. And so <laughs> you're, you're bringing back True Wilson as really the incumbent guy who's going to be look to to be the the leader going into spring ball and no offense to true wilson but he's not a an every down big 10 back that's going to lead the wolverines to their first win over ohio state in quite a a handful of years so yeah and i know a lot of michigan fans have been clamoring to open up the passing game and make it more of a pass centric offense but i don't think this is what they meant by uh (laughs) throwing the ball more than (laughs) than running it yeah, yeah. Well, now it's 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 almost going to be a forced issue. So right. maybe that'll be some positivity. The the good thing is they've got a really good coordinator coming in and Josh Gaddis. But um, you know, again, you'd like to have the cupboard a little bit more full than just half open saltine crackers and um, peanut butter jar that's down to the bottom. So right, right. Uh, there was another player who was dismissed, big name, DeAndre Francois, the quarterback from the Florida State Seminoles, was dismissed after allegations of abuse regarding uh, a girlfriend. And so Willie Taggart and the Florida State program said, we, we can't have this. We, we have enough issues on our, on our hand right now. And so Mr. Francois is gone and put himself in the transfer portal. And I'd, I'd be very curious to see which schools are going to take a, a risk on him. And obviously everybody's entitled to a second chance if you believe in second chances. But this is something where, you know, we kind of saw, uh, even with his own teammates, there was a little bit of animosity in the locker room. So now if you've got some of these off the field issues going on too, uh, what kind of situation is Francois putting a, a certain program in if they if they take a risk on him? Yeah, this one almost seems like addition by subtraction to me. Like you mentioned, it seemed like his own teammates couldn't get along with him. It seemed like the locker room was divided between him and Blackman. And it's it, it, Francois seems like more of the talented passer in Tallahassee. However, if you can get that locker room united, then maybe they don't fall apart and collapse as often as they as they did last year. And and yeah, to your point with these allegations that are upon him and the thought that maybe he's a bad locker room guy. I'm not sure how many college teams take a chance on him. Maybe he goes the Juco route or division two, because I, I, if I were a, uh, a division one coach, I would, wouldn't touch him with a 10 foot pole. No. Yeah. Maybe buddy Stevens has got a a place for him over in Mississippi there in the Juco ranks. That's exactly what I was thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, Bip, Wednesday was National Signing Day Part 2, and really a kind of a an afterthought with almost 80% of all prospective uh, big-name college athletes, football athletes, signing back in December. Who were some of the big winners in your eyes from Wednesday's signing day? Uh, first and foremost, I think Ole Miss was a huge winner as they got okay. J.R. Plumley to flip from Florida State most importantly, they get Ely to commit to them. Now, he could be a first-round draft pick and might not even play a down of football, depending on how the MLB draft shakes out this summer, as he's a very talented baseball player. But got him away from Clemson, away from Alabama, as those two mm-hmm. schools were closing hard on him. And if anyone watched the Under Armour All-American game, Ely stood out as easily the best player on either offense as he just looked like he had no trouble slicing through uh, the opposing defense in that All-Star game. Another guy that they got was uh, uh, Juco linebacker Lakia Henry, who was one of the top Juco-ranked players, and he should be able to step in and play immediately for the Rebels next year and add some talent to that defense. So Ole Miss definitely gets my nod. 
Georgia was a runner-up as they get George Pickens to flip from Auburn, which was a huge yeah. need for them and one of the best receivers in the entire country. Not only that, but they get him uh, another top guy that uh, that they pull from the state of Alabama, which is just salt in the wound of both uh, Auburn and Alabama for not being able to land Pickens. Um, but yep. side, side note, like you mentioned, 80% of the prospects uh, or recruits were signed going into this year's National Signing Day which kind of bums me out. I know it's it's in favor for a lot of teams, especially the high academic teams, for having the early signing period because then you have less of a chance of that extra month, month and a half for teams to sway your verbal commits. Uh, but man, I remember before the early signing period, National Signing Day was like Christmas morning for me. I, oh, yeah. you know, in full disclosure, took off a couple of days of work in previous years for National Signing Day just to be part of it all. And now it comes around and it's almost like it's, um, you know, uh, sweetest day or <laughs> <laughs> one of those Hallmark holidays to where you're like, oh, well, say. this has some meaning, but um, not Yeah, February not, Signing not Day sponsored by Hallmark. <laughs> <laughs> So, but how about you, Chappie? Who were you impressed by from National Signing Day that came away as a winner in your book? Yeah, in addition to your your Ole Miss talk in, in Georgia, certainly. I think Florida, um, who did a pretty good job in December Signing Day, they got defensive end Chris Bogle to flip from Alabama, mm-hmm. uh, Kair Elam to flip from Georgia, and I think also Tennessee, Jeremy Pruitt is, is really doing a good job putting a, a good hold on recruiting in the southeastern parts where he had already established himself in his time um, at Alabama and and, and at Georgia as well. But they got offensive tackle Darnell Wright, who some feel might be a starter going into the fall. Uh, And then also they got inside linebacker Henry Toto from uh, from Hawaii. And he was somebody who I I believe was a four-star recruit, but somebody who they feel can play right away and, and fill in at linebacker there and do a good job for Pruitt's defensive side. So, I mean, again, these were not just teams that we picked because we have an SEC uh, topic this week. These are the guys that really stood out and some of the bigger names that were left on the board for Wednesday's signing day. So, right again, the SEC dominating recruiting, and it'll be interesting to see where these guys fit in in those pieces this year. Mm-hmm. So speaking of other movement, there was still some more transfer transfer portal news this week. Um, Ayabi Anoma was in and out in literally a matter of a week. He started out uh, linebacker, five-star top recruit for the Crimson Tide last year. Didn't play as much as he wanted to this year, and some felt that maybe he was a little bit burned by that. So he put his name in the transfer portal, but then a couple days later, Nick Saban says he's not. He's part of our team. What? How much did this have your head spinning, Bip? Well, I, I mean, it, it, nothing surprises me anymore with the transfer portal. But no. this is the this was probably the biggest win that that Bama had this week, National Signing Day included, as he is someone that should be able to be a key contributor on that Crimson Tide defense this year. So yep. big win that he took his name out of the portal, and for now seems to be a member of the Crimson Tide for 2019. Yep. Um, 
another guy who landed somewhere, which is a, kind of a big name at, at a big school. Lawrence Cager leaves the Miami Hurricanes as I think their number two or three receiver last year. Big, tall target. Good guy mm-hmm. to throw to in the in the red zone. He lands at Georgia. So another toy for Jake Fromm to to use in his arsenal. Yep. And that that uh, Bulldog receiving crew that seemed to be decimated by the draft and graduation this year now looks like it could be one of the strengths, depending on how everyone can gel in practice leading up to um, fall 2019. Yep. Other uh, quick notes here. Former BYU running back Riley Burt, who had a pretty good bowl game out in Boise, uh, leaves the Cougars and is a grad transfer. He ends up at Utah State with Gary Anderson and that high-flying offense. I think that's a big get for the Aggies out there because uh, losing Darwin Thompson early to the NFL, they now get a guy who's got some game experience. He's obviously from that state, and so I think he'll fit in nicely with the with the Aggie offense and, and that high-flying group that they've got led by quarterback Jordan Love. Also, Virginia Tech defensive end Trayvon Hill goes to, guess where, Miami, uh, and he'll <laughs> be part of the U. And Manny Diaz really just uh, uh, kind of went clearance shopping this offseason and came away with some steals. Yeah, and and I'm interested to see how it plays out for Hill, as I think he might be considered a grad transfer because I think he's been uh, in college for four years, but kicked off Virginia Tech for undisclosed reasons. And right. Justin Fuente said it wasn't just one incident that did him in, but last year in only three games had three and a half sacks, four and a half tackles for loss. So could be a really good get for Miami if he can stay, stay out of trouble and if he's immediately eligible. Yeah, and I think I read somewhere, and, and, and I'm not swearing to this, but I think I read that it's one of those things where if he finishes classes this spring and by summer, uh, he will fit that criteria to be eligible as a grad transfer and play right okay. away for the U. So. That's what I figured. Um, quick question for you, Bip. Do you think that there should be a certain time frame for the portal to be quote unquote active for immediate transfers? And I heard this kicked around on another podcast. It seems as though it kind of puts coaches and universities at a bigger disadvantage. Obviously it's, it's good for the players, but do you think that there maybe should be a window where, uh, if you, you, say maybe there's a month where you're in this portal and after that month, after this certain date, if you either don't go back officially with your team or if you don't sign somewhere else, you can stay in the transfer portal, but automatically you are not eligible for the following football season. Or do you think that it should remain an open market and uh, first come first serve whenever a player is ready to sign? Yeah. Oh, for sure. There needs to be a time limit. I'm not sure if it's time in the portal necessarily, but I think similar to um, high school recruits coming in, there needs to be a a deadline. So a signing date essentially for transfers that will be immediately eligible. So right. I'm not sure if such a thing exists nowadays or, or you yeah. know, currently in the in the. Uh, college football atmosphere for and I don't uh, think grad transfers. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think for sure with the transfer portal this year, I think with all the activity that we've seen, it needs to necessitate a rule change. If there isn't any um, deadline for, for immediate eligible, immediate eligibility transfers for sure. Yeah. And, and to my knowledge, as long as you are enrolled in a certain university by the fall uh, semester, you are eligible to play. And we see that with some JUCO guys. Like I, I think of Makai Sargent, who played at Iowa this year. He really didn't enroll in classes until August, I think like two days before fall practice started. Wow. So he was off many people's radars. So I think technically that's the way you can go. But and obviously it 
it benefits the athlete. The sooner you sign, the quicker you can get on campus, the quicker you can get into workouts with teammates and learn the system offensively or defensively. So it benefits you to sign early, but at the same time, um, we, we can't just focus on the players here. There are their teammates and there are programs and there are coaches who have a lot at stake here as well. And so I agree with you. I think that there should be some sort of window or some time frame to where if you want to play in this upcoming season, granted that you're eligible, uh, you, you do need to sign. Um, otherwise you, you put yourself basically in a situation where you can enroll, but you have to sit out that following year because you didn't sign at a certain date. And I wouldn't be surprised if this is, if transferring is number one topic on the list of things to discuss for the NCAA whenever they have their their meeting oh, yeah. rules or whatever, because I don't know if anyone thought that the transfer portal would blow up as much as it did. They also have the fact that Justin Fields was ruled immediately eligible this year, which is a whole nother can of worms that we could have mm. probably an entire podcast about. Sure. Um, but in my opinion, the fact that he is immediately eligible is ridiculous, and mm -hmm. they've kind of backed themselves into a corner in that one because whatever the reason was that they granted him immediate eligibility, you ha you now have to take into consideration any other um, transfer that comes through citing whatever Justin Fields did, which I thought was a, a, a racial thing um, that made him feel uncomfortable and right. of, for all things, um, the fact that he felt uncomfortable about potentially not joining the Georgia baseball team for a, the fact that he didn't play baseball his freshman year and B, I don't think he's going to play baseball at Ohio state. Right. Um, but just a couple of ridiculous things that were added into his, his waiver transfer um, request, right. you know, it, now they have that to deal with for anyone else that makes that request for immediate eligibility of, well, why is my reason cited not as important as what Justin Fields had? So I scratching my head in regards to that and really interested to see what they come back with in the, on their decision for Tate Martell. Yeah. And, you know, obviously racism in any form is frowned upon by any for sure human being with, uh, with, with even a, a tint of a soul. Exactly. But if, you know, as I'm looking at it, if, if somebody did something to me, that was that bothersome to where I needed to leave the university, I wouldn't have waited for a full football season because then right. it just looks like you were sore at being at not winning the job and not getting the position that you felt you deserved. And, and I don't begrudge any quarterback who wants to transfer because that's different than any other position. There's a chance where you might be playing behind a guy who, and Jake Fromm, uh, eligibility speaking had, only one year over Justin Fields. So mm -hmm. Fields was looking at maybe sitting out for three years behind him if he stays. But, you know, again, if, if it was a situation where it was that bad, you would figure that uh, an average person or, or any other person may have said, well, I need to get out of here now. Uh, this is not a good culture for me. I don't feel that I'm being supported. Uh, my university is not getting my back in this manner, even though I think that the University of Georgia did the right things. That player from the baseball team allegedly was dismissed. Yeah, mm -hmm. so they did the right things. Right. Um, but then to go back and use that and say, well, I should be able to play right away because I felt uncomfortable at that school. If I'm on the NCAA board, I, my first question would be, why did you wait until December to make that decision? You know, it right. seems and very circumstantial. 
And I saw someone make a good point, too. They said, well, think about Jake Eason that transferred from Georgia for the same reason. He couldn't beat out Jake Fromm. Now you're essentially slapping him in the face and penalizing him because he had to sit out this year at Washington. Yeah. Now, yeah. whether he could have beat out Jake Browning or not, probably not. So it wasn't as much of a big deal for him. But, you know, if he's sitting there thinking, well, maybe I would have transferred elsewhere besides Washington to get some yeah. immediately play, immediate playing time. You know, what gives? So, yeah. Well, and Browning was benched a couple games this year. So, had Eason been eligible, he would have been in there. I know the Cal game was one of those games where Browning was benched uh, before the end of the first half. And so, you know, who knows? You throw Eason in there, he uh, brings him back, he throws three or four touchdowns. Maybe now you've got a competition. And and Jacob Eason could have very well been the starting quarterback at Washington by the end of the year, knowing that he would have years of eligibility remaining and Browning would have done it after this year. Yep, for sure. So, well, we're going to get right into the heart of our podcast today, and that is the SEC traditions. And watching games and watching them on CBS, um, it, it's really cool to see a lot of the things that these schools do, Bip. And so what we're going to do for our listeners here, um, we're going to go kind of uh, back and forth here. Bip and I are going to alternate. He's taking the SEC East, and I am taking the SEC West. And so we're going to give you a little bit of story, a little bit of meaning and background behind some of the traditions in terms of rituals, in terms of hand signals, in terms of sayings and chants and and why certain things happen. So as a casual fan, you might watch it and say, where did this come from? Why do they clang the the cowbells at Mississippi State? What does Roll Tide mean? Uh, what the heck is War Eagle? We're going to give you all of that on this podcast today. Yeah, so, so I'll kick it off with uh, in the east. We have the uh, University of Georgia. Nicknamed the Bulldogs, and legend says that the first mention of the team alongside the Bulldogs nickname was 1901 at the Georgia-Auburn game. And some Georgia fans actually had a badge that they were wearing that said, Edom, Georgia, with a picture of a Bulldog tearing through a piece of clothing. But it wasn't actually until 1920 that the name Bulldog was used officially by the uh, athletic department. Um, But it goes all the way back to those badges that they were wearing. So kind of a cool story there. Yeah. Um, couple of tradition things from Georgia. Uh, one one fun note is they were actually coached by Pop Warner for a couple of years in 19, uh, 1895, 1896, uh, 1896 being one of their undefeated seasons uh, where they won a conference title under uh, Coach Warner. Um, their live action bulldog and in my opinion one of the best mascots in college football, Uga, made his first appearance on campus in 1956 and. The um, silver britches term uh, refers to obviously the the silver pants that they wear with their red jerseys was implemented Come by on, Wally Butts. <laughs> <laughs> was implemented by Wally Butts and was actually changed back to white by Vince Dooley, but was reinstated during their 1980 national championship season, and obviously they're still used uh, today. And the term between the hedges uh, that they use for uh, speaking about playing at uh, Grantland Rice, or uh, I'm sorry, uh, Samford Stadium, uh, was coined by Grantland Rice as the, the term since the the hedges separate them, uh, the field from the stands. Um, so kind of a cool um, mention. I, I'd never heard of that, uh, but then again, I'm not uh, um, a, a purveyor of Georgia football too, too often. Right. And as far as sayings go... Um, they have the, as you mentioned before, kind of the the plain Jane go dogs, and <laughs> they also have a cheer 
where the fans yell go uh, while holding while holding the O, so a go, and then yell dogs, and they also chant sick em, woof, 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 woof. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's spot on there, Bip. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the Georgia dogs, and, and that's, you know, I, I, I always had wondered, I had heard the Silver Bridges story, but I wondered kind of why the the silver colored which kind of looks more gray when they wear their gray pants but right uh, has some significance in that and and i honestly i think it's a cool look um, i do too so well over to the west we're, we're going to start with america's team the alabama crimson tide roll tide as most people know that's that's how you greet people in Tuscaloosa. You don't say hi, you don't say howdy, you say roll tide, and that's kind of their lingo to to say, hey, uh, I'm an Alabaman, I, I I support the tide, and, and I want you to have a great day, so roll tide. Roll so, damn tide. Roll damn tide. <laughs> the Crimson Tide nickname uh, was, there was some kind of back and forth on that, but the most popular story says that on a soggy day in 1907, when Alabama went to Birmingham to play a heavily favored Auburn team, their rival, uh, before it was officially the Iron Bowl, Birmingham's iron-rich soil turned to a sea of red mud, and it stained Alabama's white jerseys. And so after fighting Auburn to a 6-6 tie, which was quite the feat for the um, the Alabama team at that point, sports editor Hugh Roberts of the Birmingham Age-Herald was supposed to have said that the team played like a crimson tide. And um, if you if you watch the tide games, their mascot is an elephant. And if you look at their logo, they have the elephant mascot. So the the big fuzzy guy that dresses up, he's known as Big Al, belovedly. And in 1930 against Ole Miss, a reporter noted the immense size of these Alabama players. And one fan called them a herd of elephants, uh, speaking to how tough they were to, to move and how much of a uh, uh, a big force that they were. So that kind of stuck, and that's where the elephant mascot comes from. Gotcha. They uh, they do have a, a cheer that they, they, they do at a lot of the Alabama games where um, you, you may have heard it. They'll, and they do it a lot with Auburn, so it'll be that dun-da-dun-dun, and they'll say, hey, Auburn, and then they do that three times, and then they all chant, we're going to beat the hell out of you. Rammer jammer, yellow hammer, give them hell, Alabama. Uh, kind of a cool uh, little rowdy chant there. And they actually have, I, I, I read that yellow hammers are a popular drink down in certain Alabama bars, especially around Tuscaloosa. Hmm. Uh, I was reading that, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but Galette's Bar is one of the, the best places to get a yellow hammer. So uh, you drink that, you have enough of them, and those words, they all slur together, and it sounds wonderful in Bryant-Denny Stadium. <laughs> Um, being a, an Alabama music band fan, uh, I, I was pleased to know that the Crimson Tide fans sing Sweet Home Alabama and Dixieland Delight uh, at various points throughout the game. So obviously Alabama singing Dixieland Delight and then uh, Leonard Skinner's famous Sweet Home Alabama. That one seemed almost too obvious, though. Oh, yeah. Um, the uh, They do have crimson and white palms that they call the Shakers. And so you've probably seen that at those games and they'll. They'll swirl them around and and they'll get a roll and then the ball's kicked off and, and they yell tide roll and then the game gets going and it's kind of a cool thing I, I kind of gave my go myself goosebumps talking about it just now so love the SEC tradition stuff. <laughs> Very <laughs> Let's good. go back over to the east, Bip. Who's who's next on your list? Well, next we have Kentucky and their nickname being the Wildcats. Uh, Nineteen oh nine. Good nickname, undefe- by the way. What's that? 
Good nickname, by the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought you'd <laughs> like that. Um, an undefeated K- Kentucky team beat Illinois. Uh, you might also like that, Chappie. Right. Uh, the next the next day, Commandment Philip W. Uh, Corbusier, and I'm probably butchering that name, the head of the military department, told a group of students that uh, the team had fought like Wildcats. So the name just kind of stuck, and that's what they moved forward with. Now, as I'm sure a lot of uh, Southern fans are know, uh, Bear Bryant coached here for nine years, going 11-1 and and winning the Sugar Bowl in 1950. A couple of the cool traditions that they have, one of them being the catwalk, which is the walk from the team from the bus to Commonwealth Stadium. One of the ones that I kind of saw that is not really a, an official tradition, but one of the um, the beat writers had written about it, something that uh, has kind of taken off that that he had done a couple times. It's called the Daily Double. So it's where they bet on horses at Keeneland Racetrack during the day and watch the Wildcats play at night. Now, obviously, this only aligns so often each year, so it depends on the schedule for that specific year, but I thought that'd be really kind of cool to go to the racetrack, bet on the horses, go watch the Wildcats play at night. Just something that you can't really get anywhere else in the country. Um, And maybe have some sweet Kentucky bourbon mixed in there too, Bip, wouldn't you say? I'm sure that they'd probably dabble a time or two. (laughs) <laughs> now i couldn't really find any sayings or or um you know out of the out of the blue chance um so i thought i'd go with the anecdote of how their colors came about now they were originally royal blue and light yellow so let that sink in for a second hmm. it was that way for only one year until they realized the error of their ways and they changed it to royal blue and white for the benefit of everyone <laughs> so swinging it back to the west who's your next one chappy well, I'm going to go to Alabama's biggest rival, and that's the Auburn Tigers. So as most people have heard, the common phrase around Jordan-Hare Stadium is War Eagle. So here's where that story comes from. Uh, they do have a live eagle nowadays named Spirit who will fly around the stadium. And so the, the story goes back to when Auburn first met Georgia, who is probably Auburn's next biggest rival. Uh, in 1892, there was a spectator who was believed to be a veteran of the Civil War. And so he sat in the stands, and on that day, he had an eagle that was with him. And he kept it as a pet for almost 30 years. And according to witnesses, the eagle at one point during the game suddenly broke free and was, quote, quote majestically circling the playing field. And so as the eagle soared around the stadium, Auburn began a steady march toward the Georgia end zone for a uh, a great come from behind thrilling victory. And so, so ecstatic at the team's play and, and the cool presence of that ominous bird flying around Auburn students and fans began to yell war Eagle to spur on their team. And it was believed that every time that that chant got going, the team was invigorated and they started playing better. And so the battle cry war Eagle lived on to become a symbol of the proud Auburn spirit. So I thought that was kind of a cool story. Yeah, kind of like the original uh, Rally Monkey. Right, exactly. Yep. <laughs> this one a little bit better, though. Yeah. Uh, the uh, Auburn is known as being on the plains, and so that comes from a poem called The Loveliest Village, or I'm sorry, um, called The Deserted Village by Oliver Goldsmith, where he mentions the line, Sweet Auburn, loveliest village of the plain. And I've never been down there a bit, but I've been reading that it is one of the most beautiful campuses, one of the most beautiful cities. In fact, I think Forbes named it one of the top 10 cities to live in in the United States, which is 
kind of caught me by surprise. I, I, yeah, I me knew too. obviously of the, of the university, but I didn't realize how beautiful of an area. So that's certainly going to be on my road trip bucket list. Sure. Um, they have a thing down there called Heyday where uh, the student body will go around and basically the challenge is to say hey to as many people as you can, kind of promoting Commonwealth and good spirit among the students and letting everybody know that you're welcome here at Auburn. Um, so those are kind of some of the cool traditions there. Obviously, War Dam Eagle being the biggest one. Okay, so let's go back it, to the east. Taking it back to the east, we'll go with the University of Florida. Uh, nicknamed the Gators, and this one was kind of cool. Uh, Austin Miller, a Jacksonville lawyer, coined the nickname. His father owned and operated a local drugstore and wanted to order some team pennants to sell. So when the manufacturer asked him, well, what logo should we like? Should we put on here? They realized that the university didn't have a team name at that time. So Austin suggested the alligators due to the animal being native of Florida and the manufacturer saying that no other team had yet adopted the mascot. So they started selling these team pennants and the the nickname just kind of took off from there and was obviously shortened to the Gators. So I thought that was kind of one of those cool things of not really being associated with the university, um, but just kind of taking off from one of these uh, off the hand um, stories or experiences. Yeah. Um, and maybe one of the more well-known stadium nicknames, uh, Ben Hill Griffin stadium, or now Steve Spurrier field at Ben Hill Griffin stadium uh, being known as the swamp actually started because of coach Spurrier. So in 1992, he called a Gainesville post writer and said, we're going to start calling our field, the swamp. What do you think? And later on in the article, it was noted that Spurrier stated swamps, the only place where Gators get out alive. So <laughs> that's kind of where that took off, which was pretty cool to, to know that, um, you know, such a legendary coach, uh, coined the term for one of the most well-known nicknames of any stadium in the country. Um, a couple traditions that the Gators have. One is Mr. Two Bits, and this is a cheer that started by Gator fan George Edmondson in 1949. And at that time, obviously, the Gators weren't very successful. So he started a cheer that goes, uh, he, he points to every side of the stadium and he yells, Two Bits, Four Bits, Six Bits, A Dollar. All for the Gators, stand up and holler. And so he did that from 49 to 2008, where he was eventually retired from that, that gig. Um, I, I had read that the Gators actually gave him an honorary uh, degree from the university. And he's one of those you know local legends in, um, in Gainesville for doing that cheer. And they even still do that cheer today, but have celebrity Mr. Two-Bit presenters, uh, Mr. Two-Bit's presenters like, They've had Danny Werfel, Chris Collinsworth, and the old ball coach himself. Yes, sir. And as far as sayings go, they have the the classic Go Gators, and they also have We Are the Boys, which is a reference to one of their songs that they, they sing every game. I wonder how long that meeting took to come out with, uh, all right, let's go with uh, Go Gators. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, them in Georgia, we're trying to vie for uh, <laughs> simple and sweet. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's why they gather for the world's largest cocktail party. They they said, to hell I'm with sure slogans. Let's just yeah, let's just go I'm drink. Sure, <laughs> I'm sure it happened at the end of one of the uh, one of those games. <laughs> right. So what do we got, guys? Well, they got Go Gators. Uh, hell, we got Go Dogs. <laughs> All right, cheers. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's swing it back to the West, Chappie. Who you got next? Um, Bip, do you uh, 
Do you ever have the feeling that you need more cowbell? Well, I got a fever. And the only prescription sometimes is more cowbell. <laughs> Bingo, my friend. We're going to go to Mississippi State where the cowbell lives and lives long. So the reason behind the cowbell, if you've never seen, if you've never had the privilege of seeing a Mississippi State game out in uh, Davis Wade Stadium, the cowbell ringing is a thing of beauty and it's music to your ears if you're a dog fan and if you are an opponent it drives you nuts and it even had opposing universities trying to get the sec to ban it which it did for about 20 years and then in 2010 they officially okayed it now I remember watching Egg Bowl games and, and watching a lot of games in the uh, 90s where you still heard the cowbells. So they didn't really enforce it that well. But here's the story. The most popular legend happened when State was playing arch rival Mississippi and a Jersey cow wandered onto the playing field. And Mississippi State soundly whipped the Rebels that Saturday. And uh, MSU students immediately adopted this cow as a good luck charm, obviously with the cowbell around its its neck. And so students are said to have, have continued bringing a cow to football games for a while until eventually they realized how cumbersome it was to bring an actual cow and <laughs> the, the dangers and the expense that came. So they obviously just shortened it up to say, well, let's just bring the cowbell. And if we all do that, what a cool sight that would be. So to me, that is, even though I, I'm not a diehard SEC fan, that's one of the coolest traditions and one of the sounds that I love hearing every Saturday down south. Mm -hmm. uh, other traditions that they have, um, they, uh, they're known for their tailgating, as most SEC schools are. So if you ever go down to Starksville or Stark Vegas, which is its own tradition in itself, go to the Junction, which is really the, the top of the line tailgating area. Um, they have Maroon Fridays where even when it's not football season, every Friday throughout the year, everyone on campus, students to professors, staff members, faculty, they're expected to wear maroon on those Fridays uh, as, as a sign of school spirit. Um, the Bulldog mascot, uh, they do have a live mascot named Bully. Interesting here, Bully, as you know, it kind of takes me back to the Saved by the Bell days, uh, was a target for kidnappers, and the last incident came in 1974, prior to the Egg Bowl game against Ole Miss, um, MSU won that game anyway, despite having their good luck charm taken. They won 31-13. So now there's a little bit more high security around Bully and, and making sure that his place is safe on that Mississippi State sideline. Go back to the East Biff. What you got on our next tradition route? Well, we're going to go with uh, University of South Carolina. So nicknamed the Gamecocks, and the reason for that is it's named after famed fighter of the Revolutionary War, Thomas Sumter, general of the South Carolina militia, who was known as the Fighting Gamecock. So named after uh, General Sumter there. One of the cool traditions that I found was called uh, Cockaboose Railroad, which is a bunch of luxury cabooses that are decked out to the nines for the ultimate tailgating experience for anyone lucky enough to have one. And this started back in the 1990s, where obviously South Carolina football had fallen on tough times and they were looking for something to make the tailgating experience stand out, as I'm sure there probably wasn't too much in the way of uh, attendance in those days. They're really pricey and, and kind of like Red Sox and Packers tickets, where you have to be lucky enough to either inherit one or have enough money to pry it away from a current owner. But I took a look at a few uh, pictures and uh, read some articles about them and they really seem like the coolest thing that you could have 
kind of like a, an RV at the infield of any NASCAR race, but something that's just there, that's yours to have, that when you go tailgating at South Carolina, you know your spot, you have it, and it's yeah. it's really something to, to behold. It, it'd be really really cool to actually take a tour of one of those things on a, on a Saturday um, down in South Carolina. Sure. Um, Sandstorm plays, uh, and obviously South Carolina is not the only team to use this song, um, but they're, they're one of the more well-known teams to use it right. as they play this before kickoff and after each Gamecock score. They're, they're, they're saying that I found is, if it ain't swaying, then we ain't playing. And it was originally like said that. in 1983 during a win uh, in which the Gamecocks beat the other USC, uh, Southern California. And it was in reference to the upper deck of William Bryce, Williams Bryce Stadium due to the rowdy crowd. Now, since then, it's been more reinforced. So there's not as much swaying, uh, despite the fact that the Gamecocks may be playing. But uh, yeah, uh, similar to you, I, I thought this was one of the cooler sayings that I found in our sec research that's right so we'll kick it back to the west chappie who you got next well a quick couple thoughts on south carolina i like sandstorm much better than what they used to play they used to play 2000 a space odyssey before uh or when the team came out which is kind of a uh, i don't know it's, it, to me it strikes me as weird and it's not yes. really uh rousing just that bum 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 mm-hmm. bum bum it's right. kind of like uh uh it almost gives you the idea that there's UFOs coming down and I'm not big into that sci-fi stuff. So if you are listeners, uh, we'll move on. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, also the Williams Bryce stadium was the scene location for the movie, the program. So all that really? from the, uh, the Eastern wool or the wolf pack, uh, they were playing in the friendly confines of Williams Bryce. So kind of a cool movie trivia there for you. Very cool. Well, going back to the West, we talked about Mississippi State, so we'll give you their big rival, the Ole Miss Rebels. Now, some people have always asked, why are they called Ole Miss? It's the University of Mississippi. So here's what I found, Bip. Mississippi, or the University of Mississippi, describes the physical structure of the buildings, the grass, the campus, anything that's tangible. Ole Miss is a spirit. It's a feeling. It's the people. It's the culture that's made up in Oxford, Mississippi. So uh, Ole Miss fans belovingly call their school and their team Ole Miss because it shows their passion. It shows their fervor for the the boys in, in the uh, blue and red, which, by the way, their colors I thought was pretty interesting. They wanted to take colors from two highly productive college football teams back in the uh, late 19th century. So the crimson comes from Harvard and the blue comes from Yale. So they took one color from each of those hmm. two power schools. And that's why they have their colors today. I thought that was kind of a cool tidbit. They're big on tailgating as well. And their area of tailgating is uh, tailgating. I'm sorry, is known as the Grove, which many people might be familiar with the name. So yep. it's rated hands down as one of the top, uh, pre- and post-game party locations in all of college football. It's 10 acres of football heaven manifesting seven times every fall. So that's taken from the Ole Miss University website. Sporting News called it the holy grail of tailgating sites, and ESPN would agree with that. So if you are making your trip down south, and I know that uh, a local radio personality took a a trip down there and, and just talked about how cool it was an experience to go and tailgate in the Grove. 
Um, now, you may have heard the term hottie toddy related to Ole Miss, and that's really their battle cry there. And so it says that you, you uh, are started off and you best be ready, they say. So when somebody <laughs> says, are you ready, um, you're going to reply, hell yeah. And so the chant goes like this. Hotty toddy, gosh almighty, who the hell are we? Hey, flim flam, bim bam, Ole Miss by damn. Kind of a cool thing, and, and they'll yell that, and obviously they do it a lot faster. They do it with a little bit more passion and spirit, um, and again, with maybe some spirits within them as well. So that's the hotty toddy <laughs> cheer, and I believe, I, I, I'm not certain of this, but I believe it's a, a popular drink down there as well, which does involve whiskey, so already I'm a fan. Yes, same here. Uh, let's go back to the East now, Bip. Uh, what's next on our list? Next, we have Missouri, who are nicknamed the Tigers. And that comes from soon after Missouri's first football team was formed in 1890, the Athletic Commission or the Athletic Committee adopted the nickname Tiger in official recognition of a group of local Civil War militia called the Missouri Tigers. So I thought that was kind of cool, a throwback to the uh, Civil War. Yeah. Um, Fun fact, Missouri's 2007 team was actually considered a national champion by Anderson and Hester, which is one of the over 40 systems designed by the NCAA as a major selector of college football national championships. And I was blown by the thought of that as um, they didn't even play in the national championship game. Uh, LSU beat Ohio State and Missouri, I believe, had two or three losses that year. So kind of struck me as odd. But one was of those that things the year that they played, because I know that there was one year right around then when Missouri and Kansas were I yes. think like one and two, but yep. um, they they both kind of fizzled toward the end of the season. So, yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, that is. And, and I think Kansas was undefeated or no, I think Missouri was undefeated going into that game. Kansas beat them. Um, but yeah, that is the same season. Cause okay. uh, I, I remember looking at their schedule and thinking, well, this doesn't look like someone who would be considered a national champion, um, as they weren't undefeated or didn't even just have one loss, but, uh, did now did they, no- did they UCF it? Did they have a parade, a national championship parade? And did they put a banner um, that, up on their rafter or up on the, uh, the facade on the scoreboard? That I didn't see. Um, I think the <laughs> I official, think <laughs> I think the official Missouri pages or a lot of the fan sites don't recognize the 2007 national championship, hmm. but there were several, there were multiple sites that did reference it as okay. a, Hey, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Remember this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Missouri is credited as the birthplace of the homecoming, which is pretty cool as their first homecoming was actually the first game of the border war between Missouri and Kansas. So I had no idea that homecoming was created in, in Missouri, yeah. uh, but credit them. And they have a couple sayings. They have the uh, simple go tigers. Uh, and then in the stadium during the games, the students will chant M I Z and the fans will then chant Z O U. Uh, one of those cool back and forths that they have uh, throughout the stadium um, you know, similar to um, go green, go white, or right. any of the others that uh, exist in today. So, yeah, that's what I had for the Missouri Tigers. Chappie, who you got next? Well, I, I'm going back to the the go Gators, the go Dogs, and the go Tigers. That would be <laughs> like if Google put an ad out on Super Bowl Sunday and it just said, "We're Google." 
and that's it. I mean, <laughs> right. Can you, I, I, and I understand that it's, it's really the fans and the fan base, but as passionate as college football fans are, can you give us a little something more than right. go fill in the blank of your team mascot here? <laughs> right. So, <clears throat> well, we're going to go down to the state of Arkansas where they will yell, woo pig suey. And interesting about the Razorback name. I thought that this was kind of a cool explanation when they when they don their team this this nickname they said that there's only one razorback they wanted a mascot that really was unique and it wasn't um used by anybody else and obviously razorbacks are are fairly native to that state and so back in 1909 when they beat their arch rival lsu uh, Arkansas football head coach hugo bezdek fatefully calls his players a wild band of razorback hogs and if you've ever seen the animal, it's got the tusks and it just um, it'll go to town. It, it, it's it's relentless. And for for being a smaller creature, it certainly packs a big punch. And so they do also have a live mascot. They nickname him Tusk, uh, appropriately named. So kind of a cool story on their on their mascot. Um they have a tradition of calling the hogs, which I did and not very well at the beginning of this segment. But um, what they do is Arkansas fans will raise their arms above their head during the hog call and they'll all yell, woo, and they'll wiggle their fingers for a few seconds. And then they'll bring both arms straight down with fist, fist clenched, yelling pig. Then they extend their right arm with the suey. And they repeat these steps a couple more times and then eventually finish with razorbacks. And like many SEC teams, they'll use that chant uh, uh, upon kickoff. And when toe meets leather, they get really into it. So that's the calling the hogs. Brings a lot of uh, goosebumps to Razorback fans. And even if you're just a casual fan for the first time in either Donald Reynolds Stadium or Arkansas uh, Memorial Stadium, uh, still a a great site and a great uh, tradition to have in both. Um, and then finally, they have what they call running through the A. So after the band plays at the B, at the pregame, the team then runs through this ginormous A that's made by the band and members on the field. And reading some accounts from former Arkansas players, they have said that that was the coolest tradition that they were a part of at the University of Arkansas. And that really motivated them to go because not only are you running through this this big band onto this glorious field, but you've got these uh, very stout, very passionate uh, fans clad in red and white that are just cheering you on. And, you know, Arkansas, I think, is one of the more underrated home fields and home field advantages in the SEC, especially when you go back in some of their heydays under uh, former head coach Houston Nutt. They were really a force. And it'll be interesting to see what Coach Chad Morris does in the next couple of years. Things seem to be going in the right direction, and we'll get more into that when we break down our SEC uh, previews for 2019. But that's Arkansas, Bip. What about the East? Now we got the University of Tennessee, nicknamed the Volunteers. And this kind of goes from Tennessee being called the Volunteer State. And the reason for that being uh, because of the volunteer soldiers from Tennessee during the War of 1812 that served under General Andrew Jackson. And mainly because of their marked valor in the Battle of New Orleans. So... For those history fans out there, you might note that the battle took place two weeks after the War of 1812 ended. And for you Simpson fans out there, you might join Ralph Wiggum and say, what's a battle? (laughs) Um, Tradition that the um, 
volunteers have are the orange and white colors, which were selected by a player on their first football team from the American daisies that grew on what's known as the hill, which back in the time was the site for just about all of the university's classrooms. Um, and obviously the, the campus has ex expanded since then, but um, that's where the, the traditional orange and white colors come from, from Tennessee. Their mascot, Smokey, uh, their blue tick coonhound mascot, was selected uh, by the students as the school's mascot from a 1953 poll. Uh, so one of the, you know, similar to, to Ugga and Bevo, one of the cooler live action mascots that they have in college football. Yeah. And this one actually uh, surprised me as Rocky Top actually isn't their official fight song, despite right. popular belief from the masses, which... Outside of the Notre Dame Victory March, I think this is easily my favorite fight song. Mm -hmm. um, love hearing Rocky Top. Love watching Tennessee games for the fact of of hearing it. And for those uh, NCAA college football, uh, you know, PS, uh, PlayStation, Xbox fans out there, always loved when that song came on in the uh, the title screen. So, yep. um, the sayings that they have, there's not really that any that i could find but they're known as the big orange and um actually that that orange is a distinct shade that's unique to the university and i'm sure everyone knows the checkerboard end zone of white and orange is just about as recognizable um to those around the country as anything else that represents the balls so that's what i got on tennessee and that rounds up the the east chappy why don't you take us through the the last team in the west Okay, uh, actually got two more in the West here. Um, so, uh, and, and, and my mistake, I can't read. I have one as well. So, okay, um, I why don't you so. go through your? Why don't you go through your second to last, and then I'll I'll keep my mouth shut. Sounds good. <laughs> we'll open it when you're ready. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, we're gonna go to LSU down to the Bayou, and so their their slogan is "Go Tigers." Now, I'm gonna give them a reprieve from the lack of originality because go is spelled g-e-a-u-x to show their pride in their french heritage so anything that ends in the o sound they typically on game day signs or in signs in and around baton rouge they will spell it with that e-a-u-x so i think that's kind of cool um the, they do have a live mascot, and one that is uh, probably one of the bigger live mascots in all of college football. It's Mike the Tiger. So Tigers, for ferocity, uh, obviously that's where they got their nickname from, but the, the origin dates back again to the Civil War, where a band of Confederate soldiers from New Orleans and Donaldsonville during the Battle of Shenandoah were known as the Fighting Band of Louisiana Tigers. Um, so for the longest time, they were nicknamed the Tigers, and then they, the, the word fighting or fighting tigers was added in in 1955 when they made a handful of fourth quarter comebacks and seemed to play their best in the fourth quarter. So when LSU fans reference the fighting tigers, that uh, sim symbolizes that they're a team that's going to play for four quarters and give you their all until um, it's all done. Uh, fans are known to yell the chant tiger bait, tiger bait whenever they see opposing fans or especially when uh, teams come out of the tunnel. And a cool thing about Mike the Tiger, uh, I learned that up until maybe about uh, 15, 20 years ago, they would take this live Bengal tiger in a cage and they would set him right outside the visiting locker room. And so opposing coaches and players would have to run out of their locker room right by this intimidating 
very large uh, Bengal tiger that was growling at them that might even try and take some swipes through the, the bar. So I know that if I was a player, that would be a little bit of a, uh, a psychological advantage or disadvantage for me as I'm coming out of that locker room. Yeah, that'd be one of the few times that I'd be happy if I were playing for Wyoming to be wearing the brown pants. Right, <laughs> exactly. Um, now, I always was wondering why LSU wears their white jerseys at home. They're one of the few teams, Georgia Tech being the only other one that comes to mind, who wears white at home. Typically, college football teams are going to wear their darker jerseys at home and their road whites. Mm-hmm. But uh, in 1958, their head coach at the time, Paul Dietzel, was a very superstitious coach and had a habit of tinkering with their uniform status every year. So in 58, they wore white jerseys at their home games, um, and that was predetermined before the season. And subsequently, they won the national championship that year. So again, being superstitious, Dietzel said, well, we won a natty with these white jerseys, so let's keep wearing them from then on. And that tradition has really never been broken. Now, occasionally they might wear the uh, the purple with the gold stripes and the the numbering on special occasions, but by and large, they're going to be wearing their LSU home whites on Saturdays. Speaking of Saturdays, they have a tradition dating back to 1931, which I think is a long time ago when you think about lights, but they uh, have a tradition of playing night games or Saturday night in Death Valley, which the, the term Death Valley is used to describe LSU, but actually the original term was Death Valley, D-E-A-F, to describe how loud that stadium would get. And a gas station owner from across the street from LSU Tiger Stadium uh, had commented on how loud it got and how deafening the, the fans were sometimes. And there have even been some unnamed LSU players or former LSU players who would point out and give credit to the Clemson University Tigers as the original and the true Death Valley. So, uh, hmm. but a, a, an interesting thing as of late, um, uh, I believe uh, I can't, the name's escaping me right now, but a, a recent LSU football player, um, when he signed, he said, I'm taking my talents to the Death Valley, kind of getting that spotlight back to Baton Rouge. So kind of a cool back and forth there between Clemson and LSU. It'd be nice yeah, to right. see those two play in a game, uh, whether it be regular season or postseason soon. For sure. Um, and then one last thing is, uh, you know, being a country music fan, the song Colin Baton Rouge by Garth Brooks is a famous one played kind of in between uh, timeouts or in between quarters where LSU students will sing along to that Garth favorite. So love that one. Yeah, I do, too. And um, so let's go to your last East team there, Bipster. Yeah, my my real last team in the East. Uh, <laughs> we got Vanderbilt, who are known as the Commodores. And this is in honor of Cornelius Vanderbilt, who made his fortune in shipping. And now the his nickname, obviously, was the Commodore. And Commodore is a former term used in the Navy that was higher than captain, but lower than admiral. So that's why you'll see um, when they have a lot of their, their uniform alternates and whatnot, you'll see the, the anchor on there um, and, and a lot of naval uh, references for Vanderbilt. Um, so a couple other traditions, the, the Admiral is a foghorn from a U.S. Navy battleship that's blown after every Vanderbilt score. The victory flag they have is raised over Dudley field after each home victory. And it's said that the Jersey colors, uh, that they, that they wear of the, the gold and the black, the black is to represent the coal that Cornelius Vanderbilt controlled 
and the gold represented his wealth. So I thought that was really cool of a lot of teams. They just come up with these, well, this two random colors that kind of look good together. Um, so this was kind of interesting to see that they actually had uh, some corresponding meaning behind them yeah. uh, in this, re- this regard. A couple sayings they have, they have the common go doors and they have a hand signal, which is a V and a U, which is if you put your, your pinky and your ring finger down, the other three fingers that are up form the shape of what looks like a V and a U. Um, so students and cheerleaders will often show this to uh, represent Vanderbilt University. Nice. So now that rounds out my uh, representation of the East. Chappie, who <laughs> you got to wrap us up? And sorry to all you Vanderbilt fans. We, we truly didn't mean to forget your Commodores, but um, <laughs> it seems like uh, the national media loses them as well, except for Jordan Rogers. But that's another topic another time. And Skip Bayless. Yeah, and Skip Bayless. <laughs> <laughs> well, I saved this one for last because this team seems to have, to me, the most traditions, and, and they're legit validated traditions as well. And that's the Texas A&M Aggies, who are the – newest member and the youngest member of the SEC West. So they are nicknamed the Aggies because A&M stands for Agricultural and Military School. So um, most agricultural schools are, are nicknamed the Aggies and their mascot is a live mascot. It's a rough collie named Reveille. So the story behind Reveille is in 1931, students found a rough collie dog on the side of the road Um, kind of injured, sick. So they took her in, got her back to health, and she stuck as the mascot for the future. And interesting, today, Reveille is given the rank of Cadet General, which is the highest rank in the Corps of Cadets. And she's even greeted as ma'am. So if you don't, if you're an A&M student, or I would assume even an outsider, if you don't refer to her or address her as ma'am, there's going to be some minor hell to pay. Um, they're known around Aggie land as, as using the term gigum, which is really a, a hand signal that uh, is a thumbs up. And so I always wondered what gigum meant. And in military code, uh, a gig is a uniform infraction, which is usually followed by some appropriate and unwanted disciplinary action. So to tell the Aggies to gigum means to discipline your opponent and let them know that they made a mistake and to get out of line with the Aggies is, is not something that they want to do. Um, another cool thing is when you're on campus, you say howdy to everyone you see on campus. Instead of saying, hey, like they do at Auburn, they're going to say howdy. They also like to say whoop a lot, which uh, shout out to Brick Heck on the middle. Yes, sir. Um, <laughs> but uh, this is not a tick that they have. They It's predetermined and they say it a lot as, a, as approval and respect for juniors and seniors on campus. Kind of a cool thing I learned. Uh, most people who know Texas A&M are familiar with the 12th man. And so here's the story of the 12th man. On January 2nd, 1922, uh, the Aggies were outgunned and facing the top ranked center college praying colonels on. Oh, in yes. The, in the Dixie Classic in Dallas. Yeah, uh, you, I believe you have some center that household college. name. Yeah, you've got some praying colonels uh, memorabilia <laughs> in your basement, don't you? Yes. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm getting visuals for what a praying colonel looks like. That's just got to be the <laughs> oddest nickname I've ever heard. Yeah, uh, that, that sounds like someone that's that uh, the colonel from KFC praying before dinner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes you do need that. Um, <laughs> so, an Aggie by the name of E. King Gill, a squad player for A and M's football team, was up in the press box, and his job was to help reporters identify players on the field below. Well, the Aggies were plagued by injuries that game, and with their reserves seemingly 
going down on almost every play. A&M coach at the time, Dana X. Bible, looked across his emptying bench and remembered that, hey, I've got a guy from our squad up in the stands, up in the press box. So he looked up to the press box and waved Mr. Gill down to the sideline, told him to suit up. So Gill ran under the bleachers, put on his uniform, uh, and took the place of injured running back Hein Weir. And um, when he returned to the sideline on the last play that was run, the Aggies found that they had pulled off one of the greatest upsets in college football history, winning the game 22-14 to 14 over the highly favored praying Colonels. So Gill remained standing and the only player left on the team's bench and uh, became a folklore hero, and it, it's really stuck ever since then. And that seems like the nail in the coffin for the praying colonels. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> that uh, you never heard of them again. <laughs> right. Um, at Texas A&M, they don't cheer; they yell. So they have uh, what are known as yell leaders, and these are gentlemen who are dressed in all white uniform, and they've got certain hand gestures, and they take it as serious as you have yell practice at midnight before the games, and so they want to make sure that every Aggie fan in attendance, even on away games, knows what the chants are, when to do them, what these hand signals are, what the gestures are, and they want you to know what your role is as an Aggie football fan. Um, so kind of a cool thing with that. And then when they sing the Aggie War Hymn, everybody swaying arm in arm, singing the, the chorus Saw Varsity's Horns Off, which is a playoff of their former rival, the University of Texas Longhorns. And so... Again, just another reason why if one school's fight song references sawing your uh, team's horns off, those two teams need to get back together and, and play one another. Those presidents need to get their, their S in order and, and get those teams back on the gridiron. Exactly. Um, so that pretty much runs. Oh, the last thing, and this is appropriate because we are uh, coming to a close here on this episode of Bowl Full of Chips. If the Aggies are ever behind in the scoreboard when triple zeros hit the clock they never admit a loss they always just say we ran out of time so aggies never lose they just run out of time which is kind of a a good positive psychological spin on on not coming out on top so so stanford took the a page from the aggies book during the uh famous stanford cal game then right exactly yep they <laughs> they ran out of time and the band is on the field <laughs> So, well, we uh, we hope you enjoyed that SEC tradition podcast that we just presented to you. Now, obviously, Bip and I did the best that we could with our research, and we apologize if we butchered any names or if we didn't give enough Southern drawl to our our cheers. But it was fun researching Bip. I don't know about you, but it, uh, being a history guy and a history teacher. I like looking back at some of the uh, the reasons and the stories behind why we see some of these great, passionate things going on in college football. Yeah, a lot of cool things that I found out. I'm really looking forward to the rest of the conferences that we plan on doing this this same thing for throughout the rest of the uh, spring and summer. And if there's anything that we missed, because you know we scoured as many websites that we could and as many books as we could on on this but with a given time frame and with uh you know being at the mercy of the the resources that are out there if you feel that there's something that's maybe more updated that we we need to mention uh hit us up on twitter again i'm at champion underscore lit he is at bfc bip so uh send it our way and, and we'll be we'll gladly retweet it out so the college football world is understanding 
So where can you find us? Well, obviously you found us somewhere, but if this is not the best mode of listening to Bip and I, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Overcast, and Radio Public, among others. Uh, or you can simply just do a Google search, Bowl Full of Chips Podcast, and something good will, will inevitably pop up. But we recommend that you find us on one of those platforms that we just mentioned. So uh, that's certainly not all we've got, but it is all the time that we have for today. So we want to thank our wives for being the coolest wives in the world for allowing us to pursue our passion. Thanks to our sponsors, theblacktux.com, as well as the Anchor Podcast platform. But most importantly, we want to thank all of you for listening, especially those who are back again and not succumbing to the doldrums that are the college football offseason. We will always help you get your fix. We strongly hope that you continue to subscribe, listen, but also spread the word and help us be heard. And if you like what you hear and are propelled to do so, please rate us with an honest and hopefully positive review. On our next episode, we will tee it up, walk back 10 yards, put toe to leather, and kick off our conference reviews from 2018, starting, of course, with this SEC conference. Thanks for listening to A Bowl Full of Chips. I am Chappie. And I am the Bip. And y'all come back now, you hear? <laughs> and please remember, biggest isn't always best, so thanks for choosing the right over the rest. Y'all keep bowling, bro chachos.